invite you now to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. The words to which I would call your attention this morning are found in verse 24 of the 6th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin reading in verse 19. We'll pick up the context again. As we do so, we read God's Word as an act of worship. He's given it to us for our good, uh, for the preservation of our peace. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for the life that they give to your people. Thank you for the way that you sustain us. Thank you that Christ is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. We thank you that the temple veil was rent from top to bottom, that your spirit has gone out now into all the earth so that Wherever we are, there you are. Lord, we delight that we are in your presence through Christ and by your Holy Spirit even now. Would you give comfort to those who need comfort? Would you give conviction to those who need conviction? And would you shepherd us all by your faithful rod and staff? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. When you cross the border into the state of Alabama, and if your intention is to remain there for any particular period of time, uh, you must answer one very, very important question of immigration. It, it has nothing to do with the flag. It has nothing to do with whether you know all of the words of the Pledge of Allegiance or not. It is Nothing to do with the U.S. Constitution, whether you know anything about the Bill of Rights. It's one question. Will you cheer for Alabama or Auburn? Now, the way that you answer that question in your life will determine who your friends are. It will determine where you spend your Saturdays in the fall. And sadly, it will determine if the season ends on a good note or a bad note lately whether you become a football fan or really just a basketball fan anymore. We do a lot of things for love, don't we? We'll camp out outside of uh, academy sports for hours on end to purchase a national championship t-shirt. 
like my father at a Braves game in the early 90s, buy tickets from a man by the name of Snake. You will climb high mountains, apparently. You will ford deep rivers. You will bring pain to yourself, all for the purpose of obtaining that thing that you love and demonstrating that love to that person or thing, that object. It's a remarkable thing in Scripture that the command above all commands to us is to love God. You find that interesting? Of all the things that God could command you to do as His rightful servant, He commands your heart You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. God commands your affections. Why is that? Why why command affections? Why are affections so important? Well, because He has taught us that wherever our affections are, there our heart, wherever our treasure is, there our heart will be also. He, He wants the heart. He wants the whole person And if you want the whole person, you must have the person's love. We we make sometimes ridiculous decisions to to follow after something that we love. I remember learning uh, several years ago, the Wall Street Journal revealed that uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of Americans have their social security wages garnished to pay off student loans. Jesus, in this passage, is comparing uh, the pursuit of wealth, the storing up to ourselves of wealth, and the pursuit of Christ. And he he sets these, as it were, in, in diametrical opposition to one another to say to us, as it were, that either you can pursue uh, the gain of wealth, the gain of earthly possessions, or you can pursue me. And it's interesting that so many of us have have bought into the allure of riches that I will invest hundreds of thousands of dollars to to get a degree in art appreciation with no promise of return. So much so that in the twilight years of your life, you will go on paying off those loans because someone made the promise to you that it was worth it. Jesus teaches us here that you are mastered by whatever you love the most. Either you will love God and serve Him, or you will love wealth and serve it, and you cannot do both. Now, as we come to this passage, all along, Jesus has reminded us that the Christian's focus must be singular. But when it comes to how we invest our time and our money, uh, we, we invest those things either in earth or in heaven. We, we can't do both. He's offered you the promise that, that you can invest your time and your money in something that cannot be lost, where it cannot be affected by the fall. The men can't steal it from you. The IRS can't come after it in heaven. 
No matter how corrupt and depraved of mind men are, they cannot take away your heavenly riches. Your eye, likewise, must be focused. Focused upon your Savior, sincere and simple, uh, resting upon Him, looking to Him at all times, in all seasons of life, focused upon your Savior. And this morning, Jesus brings us to a last illustration when He says to us, that no one can serve two masters. Notice, first of all, no one can serve two lords. Now, Jesus here, he shifts to the concept of indentured servitude. The concept of slavery here. You cannot serve two masters. As one commentator has translated it, he says, no one is able to give slave service to two Masters. Slavery was a, it was a major image for Israelites. A major image in their mindset. It, it had a major uh, meaning for them. Major significance. Why? Well, because they came out of slavery. In fact, if you read the Ten Commandments, you cannot read those Ten Commandments without beginning at the preface. What's the preface to the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I have delivered you from slavery. And this mindset, God reminded them to take this mindset over and over and over again. They were to treat other servants in the house of Israel with compassion. Why? Because you were slaves. This slavery was a controlling ethic, a principle that was to direct the way that they treated other people and the way that they thought about their own lives. They were to remember their former slavery, to teach their children about it as well. We remember from places like Nehemiah chapter 9 that in punishment of Israel, when they weren't faithful to him, God delivered them back into bondage. The Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians, and in this context now, the Romans are a constant reminder that they are given back over. Slavery is a prevalent image even under the New Covenant now. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 15, Paul asks an important question. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You see here the the picture of the gospel 
is a picture of, of men and women being delivered from slavery, from bondage to sin and self, and into a new servitude to righteousness. The redemption of Israel from Egypt is it's the picture of your redemption. We remember from places like John 8 that Christ has purchased our freedom. He bought us with His own blood. And so it's interesting as we think about that picture, go back now to Matthew chapter 6. This picture of slavery, of lordship. Notice what Jesus says. No one can serve two lords. No one can do slave service to two masters. Isn't it interesting that he says, can? If you had a, a faithful English teacher like I did, you would raise your hand in class and say, can I go to the bathroom? And then she would say, I don't know, can you? And then in my class, we would have to say, may I, may I, may I? So that we would begin to understand the distinction between ability and permission. I'm not asking her if I'm able to go to the bathroom. We all know that we can. The question is, will you allow me to? What term does Jesus use here with reference to slavery? We expect Jesus to say no one may serve two masters, don't we? In other words, we expect him to say there is no master in his right mind, no Lord who's going to allow you to divide your time between his service and the service of someone else. doesn't make any sense. So this would be an issue of permission, but that's not what he says, is it? What word comes to the fore? What is accented? Jesus says no one can serve two masters. In other words, it's not not, uh, because of the master. It's because of you. It's because of the limitations that you have. That you can't do this. He isn't referring to a limitation of permission. He isn't saying the master won't allow you to serve two. He's referring to a limitation of ability. This is like saying, Brian, you cannot dunk a basketball. It's correct. Can't do it. You don't have the capacity to serve two masters. It's not in you. Here we remember that Christ is speaking as the second person of the Trinity. He is speaking to you as one who knows your heart. Otherwise, wouldn't we say, how dare you tell me what I can and cannot do? How dare you tell me what I'm able to do and I'm not able to do? My mom has told me my whole life, son, you can do whatever you set your heart on. Well, Jesus says, not so fast. Christ, as the one who knit you together, the one who established the boundaries of what is good and right in your life, now is looking at you, his beloved, in the face, and he is saying to you, you cannot serve two masters. Why? It is as if to say, I did not make you to serve two masters. Why is that, Jesus? Well, because secondly, we see Men can only love and be devoted to one master. 
Look how Jesus goes on. He uses this term for. That's an explanatory term. He wants you to understand. He's anticipating your question. Well, how can you say that to me? This, this isn't an issue of ability. This is a question of, of permission. And Jesus says, no, it's a, question of, it's a question of ability. Because either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now, if you took logic class, you, you know that this is really a classic example of the false dilemma fallacy. Some people will come to you and say, look, you're either for us or you are against us. Okay, either you need to say the Pledge of Allegiance or you need to leave the country, right? This is a false decision. I don't have to do one or the other. There's a middle ground here. This looks exactly like that, doesn't it? This is a, a false dilemma. This is a fallacy. Jesus, Jesus is using bad logic here. Either he will hate the one or love the other. Are you, are you serious? Those are the only two options that I'm, I've got? Surely there's some middle ground here. I can devote a little bit of my time to one and a little bit of my time to the other. And Jesus says, no. You can only love and be devoted to one master. Yeah, this is a limitation of affection. You cannot love two masters. You cannot be devoted to two masters. It's a very difficult image to get our minds around, isn't it? I mean, think now. Let's, let's go back for just a second and remember that exactly what imagery we're talking about. This is the imagery of slavery. It's the imagery of bondage. What slave would love his master? Turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Under Jewish law, the way that Hebrews owned Hebrew slaves was regulated. The way that Hebrews owned non-Israelite slaves was regulated. The way that non-Israelites owned Hebrew slaves was all regulated. And here we find in Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 12, a principle of Hebrew to Hebrew slavery Let's read these words together. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give it to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this today. And notice this. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, 
Then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. In Israel, it was possible for a slave to be so kindly treated, so well provided for under his master that that slave recognized, look, I am so well off under this man's uh, mastery that I don't want to go anywhere else. I love him. He provides for me. He gives me what I need. And this is exactly the imagery that Christ is presenting to us. It is possible to have affection for a master. Not all lordship is, is menial. Not all lordship is is degrading. There is a lordship which treats you with humanity and love so much so that you might have an affection back for it. Back for your master. Jesus is bringing this illustration to you. This is the reason that you cannot serve two masters. You will love one. You will be devoted to one, but you cannot be devoted to them both. And finally then, he he brings the final statement going back to Matthew chapter 6. And he tells us exactly what he's talking about. Thirdly, you cannot serve God and money. Now, the literal rendering here is you cannot serve God and mammon. Many of us, we went to uh, vacation Bible school, and that's exactly the way that we memorize it. You cannot serve God and mammon. And it's an interesting contrast, isn't it? Because it's, on the one hand, you've got one God, Jehovah, and you have the other personified God, mammon. And in your life, Jesus is saying, either you're bowing to Jehovah, or you are bowing down to Mammon. Either you're going in and you're worshiping Yahweh, or you are worshiping in the other temple and worshiping Mammon. And this is what it comes to. The question for you is listen, the question is not whether you will serve a master or not. Do you get that? You say, well, I'm no man's slave. I'm no man's servant. But Jesus says, you've got this wrong. You don't understand life correctly. You don't understand the way of things correctly. You're thinking like a fool. The question for you is not whether you will serve a master or not. The question for you is, which master are you serving? Which master do you love? The picture of your salvation is one of purchase and of ownership. If you are redeemed by Christ, you have been purchased. Isn't that what the scriptures say? He bought you with his own blood. He's delivered you. But to what has he delivered you? He's removed the shackles of your former slavery. And he has brought you into to himself. Do you understand? This is why the Exodus is such an amazing picture of our redemption. The Israelites labored under hard taskmasters. 
In Exodus chapter 5, we're reminded that they were required to not only make their own bricks, but they had to go and gather straw. These taskmasters were so hard that, that they didn't care about the ones who were serving them. They didn't care about the ones who were building their monuments and building their pyramids and building their buildings, building the places of their worship. They had no love for them, no concern whatsoever. They drove them and drove them and drove them. The whole purpose was the quota, the quota, the quota, the quota. They were driven with whips. If you die, throw his body aside and bring in another. You're worthless, meaningless. This is the picture of the god Mammon. Wealth. It is never satisfied. No matter how large the bank account grows, it still demands more. And why is that? Because the more I put in, the, the more the man takes away from me. I notice that interest rates are going down. I used to have my money in CDs, but CDs are worthless today, so I have to move them to money market accounts or wherever. And always I'm feeling the effects of the fall. That's the taskmaster that mammon is. I always need more, more and more and more. We make foolish decisions. Because we have been trained to give ourselves in slavery to this false God. We, we have been so trained that rather than finding my identity in Christ, my value and who I am and the reason that I exist in Christ Jesus, I find my identity in what economic return I give to the country. Who are you? An attorney? Good. An electrician? Eh. Who are you? A politician? At one time, great. Who are you? A ditch digger? Eh, I'm not letting my daughter marry one of those. You see, we've been so trained to serve the God Mammon that we find our identity in Him. We've been trained to view certain professions as more noble than others and so pursue them. That's why hundreds of thousands of baby boomers are having their wages garnished to pay off those student loans. Who knew that you would become disabled and never be able to pursue that career? We are more diligent to review our retirement accounts than Scripture. We take more time to plan for the physical needs of our families than the spiritual needs. This is evidence that we are serving the wrong master. That you love mammon. But you see what God did for his people is he heard their cries. He inclined his ear to them. And in his mercy, he went to them, gathered them up on the wings of eagles and brought them to himself to Sinai. He delivered them from that taskmaster. Not to deliver them from servitude, but to bring them to himself. 
You see, as we read from Deuteronomy, we find the picture of God himself. He is that benevolent taskmaster, the one who has the best in mind for those who serve him. The one who loves, who can say of himself, I came not to be served, but to serve God redeemed his people and transferred them from a harsh owner to a loving one. He is the master who, in your salvation, has brought you to himself. He is a shelter to you, not a burden. He is a rock that you don't place on your back and march through this life with. He is the rock that you devote yourself to, that you cling to, whose promises can never fail you. He is the master who has drawn you not with shackles and chains. He is the master who draws his people with the cords of love. He is the one who has made you for himself. He is the one who purchased your life by giving his in its place. So that in Isaiah 55, Jesus beforehand can ask, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food Incline your ear to me and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. When you come to Christ, you are leaving that harsh taskmaster and coming to one who's laid down his life for you. Who bore the whips on his own back. Who says in John 6, 27... Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Now Jesus is, is beckoning you in this very moment to see that the longer you serve mammon, the longer you seek only to accumulate wealth and good things of this, of this life to yourself, you will only be eaten out with rust. It decays. Men will steal it from you. He reminds you that your love for God must exceed every other love. And this is a moment for us of introspection. L looking inside. As you consider... Whatever stage of life you are in right now, your priorities, what are your aims in life? What are your goals? What do you love to spend your time and your money on? Or to ask the question in another way, which master do those priorities, aims, and goals and ambitions serve. Jesus is saying to you, you can only love one and, and not the other. You, you can love one and hate the other. Why? Because their objectives are totally different. I cannot pull for Auburn and Alabama at the same time. They will both cast me out. 
have to become an LSU fan. You can only love and be devoted to one. And now we see the picture, don't we? That we are one bride. The bride of Christ. He will not share his spouse with another one. How are you spending your money? How are you spending your time? Are you investing it with your master Christ? You must choose. You must choose between wealth and serving wealth and serving God. One may give you security in this life, maybe, but Christ our loving Lord promises to give you security in this life and in the one to come. Whom will you serve? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our birthright is to serve the God Mammon. Our birthright is to worship Him, is to go through all of the religious routine that He requires, the saving up, the building up, the living at times cutthroat, the lying to get ahead, the putting our foot, our boot on the neck of another so that we can get the promotion, not considering our actions very well, making unwise decisions, investing our money in places that we ought just because it gives us the best return. Our ethics, our ethics can be determined by mammon. Should I steal? It depends on the economic return. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the sort of Lord who, who has brought us in to become your servants, your bondservants, your slaves. And that you are the sort of, of gracious and benevolent master who provides for us. You told your people to go into a land, to live in homes that they had not built, to drink of the wine that they had not threshed. You provide, and we are going now to a country that we have not built. We look ahead to Zion and inheriting things there that our hands have not formed, but that you provide. Lord, we pray, help us to have eyes to see today whose we are, who has our affection, where is our treasure. And help us, Lord, to be singularly focused on you and your glory. We pray in your name. Amen.